0: and on today's episode, a listener writes in and they have a great question. What are signs and wonders of the end times? Well, man, this is a really important question because of the times in which we're living. And it, and it, and it seems like today, especially, that you know, many people are curious about, are we living in the end times? When is the end? And so on and so forth, and so I hope that you'll find this um, helpful because you know we all have we all have these types of questions: When will the Lord return? Well, to be clear, we don't know when and in fact, Jesus very clearly tells us, as we're going to talk about today, but he very clearly tells us in matthew's gospel that we we don't know the day or the hour, but we do know that what we can look for. And we are living in between what we call the times. The, the times when Christ came, Christ, when Christ died, he inaugurated. We would say the word inaugurated means that he began the start of the end times. And so he'll end those times when he returns and then he establishes the kingdom. This is called the already and not yet. The already is. Is the fact that Christ has come and Christ has bled and Christ has died and Christ has rose and He's ascended to the right hand of the Father and and then Christ the the not yet is the is the time when Christ will return and He will establish His kingdom and so when I use the phrase between the times that's what I mean in that we're living between the times and so this helps to give some context before we even get started answering uh the question now every christian be- should believe and yet be- should believe that the lord's return is eminent meaning the return of the lord jesus could happen at any time any moment paul tell paul calls this in titus two thirteen, waiting on our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great god and savior jesus christ and knowing the lord could come back today causes some people to wonder what what they're doing and and only wait for him uh, so they want to know when the Lord is coming back. And yet there's a difference between knowing Jesus could return today and knowing he will return uh today. In Matthew twenty four, thirty six, Jesus on this point says very clearly, But concerning that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And so the timing of the Lord Jesus' return is something the Lord has not revealed to anyone. And so until he calls his own to himself, we need to be faithful and look forward, as Paul does in, in second uh, Timothy, to the return of Christ. We are to eagerly long for the appearing, the return of Christ. And let's be clear about something context really matters in the context of Matthew 24 24 finds itself in a section running from Matthew 24 1 through Matthew 25 46 uh, discussing what's known as the Olivet Discourse so named because Jesus in Matthew 24 3 says he sat on the Mount of Olives and when he spoke these words further the Olivet Discourse is the fifth of Jesus. Five major discourses recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, addressed to his disciples, the Olivet Discourse is intended to give them a prophetic overview of the events to transpire in both the near and the distant future. Matthew 25, or excuse me, Matthew 24, five through eight, it gives us some important clues for discerning the approach of the end times. An increase in false messiahs, an increase in warfare, increases in famines and plagues and natural disasters. These are all signs of the end times. In this passage, though, we are, we are given a warning. We are not to be deceived because these events are are only the beginning of the birth pains. The end is still to come. The last days are described as perilous times because of the e- increasingly evil character of man and people who actively oppose the truth. And so how do we see these signs and how to know how do we are we to know that something is a sign? As as soon as Jesus returned to Israel's territory, opposition from Jewish leaders resurfaces. <coughs> The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were rival groups of leaders. And so this is an unusual grouping. Here they operate together for two reasons. First, they are two main groups of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. And second, they are united by a common opposition to Jesus. They think that the enemy of their enemy is their friend. And so the leader's quest for a sign, though, is misguided. Matthew hints that the request For a sign is insincere, yet Jesus has already performed an abundance of signs, and yet they still never believe. As soon as possible, Jesus leaves their territory again to escape them. But before Jesus departs, he commends the Pharisees and the Sadducees for their ability to read the signs of the weather. A red sky in the evening signified good weather in the morning. A red sky plus clouds meant just the opposite. And how sad then that they could they could read the weather but not read the signs of the great events taking place in their times that's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 16. as religious leaders, they above all should know that, that God visited his people, had sent the long-expected Lord Jesus, a wicked generation cannot read the signs. The proof that, that they cannot interpret the signs is that they immediately asked for a sign after Jesus gives a sign. And their spiritual blindness kept them from Jesus. As long as they refused to see Jesus, they remained blind. And then Jesus compared himself to Jonah in Matthew 16:4. Jonah, you recall, did not really perform a sign. He was the sign. He was thrown overboard into a raging sea. He was swallowed by a great fish. He spat on a dry ground, and then he preached to a great effect to the Assyrians of Nineveh. The very life of Jonah was the sign, and the mere presence of a Jewish prophet in a hostile city was a sign. And so it was with the Lord Jesus. The leaders do not need signs by Jesus. They, they need to see Jesus. His presence, his life, is God's sign here, uh, excuse me, then and now. The Jewish leaders needed to add faith to the words and deeds of Jesus. And then they would see him, and, and so it is for us today. The request for signs is wise and for willing to see and to believe them. But we must be willing to discern God's work. We, we must be willing to hear the voice of God in, revealed in the Word of God. That's the only way to know God. And that's also the only way to understand the signs, the nature of our times. We must know our times, and we must know the times, and we must know the signs. And above all, we must know that Jesus both transcends all times, and that he gave the most important sign of all time. His miracles, his signs showed his compassion, his generosity, his love for all. In our time, let us be faithful to him personally, and let us faithfully strive to convey the truth to our age. Jesus knew that knew that when the world will end often leads people to unwise and even unhealthy speculation. And so Jesus immediately clarified what he said. His answer in Luke 21 addresses both the more immediate question of the destruction of the temple and the larger question of the world's end. This dual perspective is necessary because what Jesus said about the temple made people think about the final judgment, and Jesus wanted to put both events into their proper perspective. Studying Luke 21 is like wearing bifocals. The destruction of the temple is near at hand. Many of the prophecies in this chapter deal with specific events that happened before and during the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and yet the end of the world is always in the background. And we continuously need to keep this in our gaze. The destruction of the temple is is a portent of the final judgment. It is the beginning of the end. And so Jesus extends the discussion from the destruction of the temple to the end of the world. And looking beyond his first coming to his second coming, he is the messianic and apolitic end times language that the Old Testament prophets used when they talked about the great and terrible day of the Lord. Here in Luke 21, the immediate historical context It is the time leading up to and including Jerusalem's fall. And thus the commands of Jesus apply most directly to the disciples who lived through those terrible days. However, the backdrop to that historical act of divine judgment is that judgment is still to come. And so the exhortations in Luke 21 also apply to us now and in the future as we face various trials and tribulation before the second coming of Christ, that the disciples also asked Jesus to explain whether we should ask for signs or not in Matthew twenty four three, and we must understand this inquiry correctly. When will this happen means when will Jerusalem fall and when will the temple be destroyed? You see, the disciples thought they were asking one question about the fall of Jerusalem, the coming of Christ, and the end of the age were essentially one vent in their minds. Now. Whatever the disciples intended, Jesus heard and he answered two questions, one at a time. The first part of his reply predicts events that will take place in this generation, in Matthew 24, 34. That is, within 40 years, the lifetime of the disciples. Jesus' purpose for this element of his reply is practical. He wants the disciples to be prepared, rather than shocked, rather than alarmed. He wants them to know the truth about the troubles that are to come, that they're going to see in their generation. And those troubles are not the signs of the end. The disciples must be ready to stand firm to the end in hard times. But Jesus begins his reply here in Matthew 24, 4, Watch out that no one deceives you. During their days, there's going to be events that look like the final cataclysm but but there will be no mistake then when when Jesus returns all the nations will see him he's going to come with angels and trumpets power and glory and the disciples do need to watch for signs of the fall of Jerusalem the sequence is necessary we notice that the word then starts to appear then you will face persecutions in Matthew 24 9 then many will renounce the faith in Matthew 24 10 then when Jerusalem is attacked the disciples should flee to the mountains in Matthew 24 16 in Matthew 24 36 Jesus begins to answer the second question and answer it that day is a technical term roughly like the term the Super Bowl in American football Similarly, the the people of Israel knew that day meant the last day, the judgment day. That day is the last day, the end of the world as we know it. And so to interpret Matthew 24 correctly, we must understand where Jesus stops answering the first question and starts answering the second question. Jesus finishes answering the question about the destruction of the temple At Matthew 24, 34 through 36, Jesus' prophecy of troubles in his generation has all the authority of God and all the authority of the word of God. And so it would be easier for the universe to uh, disintegrate than for Jesus' prophecy to fail. Matthew 24, 35 says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will never pass away. And so all that that Jesus foretold did occur, at least provisionally, within a generation. And the switch to the last day occurs in Matthew 24, 36. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, and nor the Son, but only the Father. So Jesus promised that certain things would happen in that generation, and they did happen in that generation. And as often happens with prophecies, some of Jesus' prophecies Point beyond his generation, prophecy has a double fulfillment. That's what I mean. Jesus' word was fulfilled in his generation, as he said. Prophecy has a double fulfillment. He staked Jesus stakes his reputation on it, and yet there's more to come. And notice that the disciples ask questions about timing. They want to know when will these things be. They want to know what the sign signifies that the end is near. But but Jesus does not reply with a when, a set of dates, or a timetable, or signs, but with a what and a how. He tells us what sort of things are coming and then how to prepare for them. In that way, he prepares us to stand firm in the storm and to look forward and to stand ready to meet the Lord when he returns. In 2 Timothy 4 eight, which I alluded to earlier, Paul Paul is facing his impending execution with joy, saying that, that he knows that he's going to have a crown of righteousness that awaits him in the presence of the Lord God. And now he's not referring here to being saved by good works, but by, but only by the righteousness of Christ alone, which he stresses, stresses in his epistles. And once a person has been justified by faith alone, They will do good works that the Lord will reward in the life to come, although such works, we need to say, do not earn anyone a place in heaven. And though every saint, sinner, to use the language of of Martin Luther, the reformer, is imperfect, the Lord will reward each Christian a crown for the good works they have done because they have loved the appearing of the Lord Jesus. Matthew Henry is right. It is the character of all the saints, that they long for the appearing of Jesus Christ. They love his second appearing at that great day. They love it, and they long for it. It is very easy to become content with the materialistic possessions, the things of this life, and to have that perspective. And yet, a love for the second coming of the Lord Jesus should motivate every Christian, then, by the grace of God, with the help of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, to do good works that will gain an everlasting reward. Well, friends, I want to thank you for listening or even watching this episode of the Servants of Grace Theology segment. Until next week, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today.